Back to Galatians, here we are. Uh, Chapter two, verse 11, but today we're gonna be talking about conflict in the church and where it comes from and how to handle it. And the Apostle Paul uh, gives us some advice uh, in this passage today. It's a place to begin. I'd like to start with the observation that most church conflicts fall into one of two categories. Uh, The first one is category two conflicts are those disagreements that are basically non-biblical in nature, and they deal with matters that are not directly uh, discussed in the Word of God. Most conflicts in the church, uh, believe it or not, fall into this category, such as what color should the carpet be, you know, whether or not we should have carpet at all. There's not a verse in the whole Bible that tells us the answer to that question definitively. Another example would be uh, when to schedule worship services and how many services to have. You know, in some other uh, denomination churches, we have Sunday morning service, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. That's perfectly fine. There's no biblical mandate to follow that pattern. We've chosen for various reasons to put all of our services on Sunday morning and add one in the summer on Monday evening. Or people might argue about whether to sing from the hymnal or whether we sing by putting the words on the screen. What to name the church is another category two dispute in many churches. Most people don't know that this church has had three different names in its history. Uh, We were founded as two separate congregations, the DeWitt Methodist Church, which was downtown DeWitt, and the Emmanuel Methodist Church, which was out on this corner, became Redeemer Church in 1970. Why did the church change the name? Because the congregation wanted a new name when they merged to become one church. I don't know if there was conflict around that. That was before my time. Could we change the name again in the future? I suppose we could. See, changing a church's name is a category two issue because it doesn't involve any clear biblical revelation. Nearly all conflicts in the life of a local church fall into this category. However, category one conflicts and disputes often involve matters where the Bible has clearly spoken. And maybe examples of this would be, is the Bible the word of God? Is Jesus the son of God? Was Jesus' birth unique in that he was born to a virgin named Mary? Did Jesus literally rise from the dead? Is the Holy Spirit a part of what we call the Trinity? These are big issues that the Christian church has talked about and agreed upon for centuries. And there's some clear biblical teaching in these areas. Disputes on these issues are so important that to compromise on them is to deny some important Bible teaching. Now, I suppose there could be, we could say that there's a third category of conflict as well, and that would be arguing over whether a particular conflict goes into category one or category two. (laughs) And I think uh, these are some of the hottest arguments of all, One person says, that's clearly taught in the Bible. Another person says, no, it's not. At best, you know, it's an inference. It's a personal preference. And the battle rages on for weeks and months and even years in some places. Well, our lesson from Galatians 2, chapter 2 today offers us a classic example of a church conflict that in many ways is a category 3 dispute. On the surface, it appears to be something that is a category 2 conflict, Uh, who you choose to eat with, but St. Paul treats it as a category one issue. In his mind, the gospel itself is at stake. Let's take a moment to find out what's really happening and why Paul does what he does. 
in uh, verse, beginning with verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him, says Paul, face to face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew, by birth have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Now this is one of those passages that at first glance seems rather remote from us today. But upon further inspection, I think it's highly relevant. Our story begins in Antioch. It's a bustling cosmopolitan center located north of Israel in the province of Syria. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it is a Christian center. Although it had a large Jewish population, it is predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile. We know from Acts chapter 13 that the first missionaries to the Gentiles were sent out from the church in Antioch. Evidently, there was two sizable groups of converts in this one local church. There were Jews who had been circumcised and raised under the law, but had come to faith in Jesus Christ. There were also Gentiles or non-Jews who had, put, who had not been circumcised, who had been raised in pagan religions, but had also come to know Jesus Christ. And these two groups got along fine. The Jews and the Gentiles in the church seemed to love each other. They enjoyed each other's company, despite some very different backgrounds. They even ate their meals together, for which the Jewish converts, this was a huge step, since that meant leaving the kosher laws of their childhood. So one day the apostle Peter comes to visit, and can you imagine uh, what a scene this must have been? Peter was really elevated as one of the, the top apostles coming from Jerusalem. He had been personally called by Jesus. Remember, this is the guy that walked on water to, come, to go to see Jesus uh, out on the lake one night. Uh, this is the guy who, who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He came to the empty tomb, one of the first people to get to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning, who later uh, that day swam out to meet the risen Christ uh, near the beach who saw 3,000 people trust Christ after he preached a great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter was the man Jesus called the rock, and he had come to Antioch to visit this local church. And I'm sure the, the, they crowded around him. They listened to him and it, with amazement to all of his stories. And what Peter saw in Antioch amazed and pleased him. He saw Jews, he saw Gentiles worshiping together in one church. They were singing the same songs, they were laughing together, they were working together, they were praying together, and yes, they were even eating together. Nothing like this happened in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem church was entirely Jewish. But here in Antioch, things were very different. Peter loved it. He joined right in with his brothers and sisters, and he gladly ate his meals with the Gentile uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. They loved him, they, uh, and, and he loved them, and to him, this was what the body of Christ was meant to be. And one day, some other people came along who spoiled everything. 
They claimed to be from James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and evidently they were on some sort of inspection tour. Maybe they had heard about what was happening in Antioch and came to put a stop to it. What they saw appalled them. They saw circumcised Jews eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. They saw Jews disregarding the kosher laws of the Old Testament. And to their astonishment, they even saw the Apostle Peter openly eating with these same Gentiles. And this whole scene revolted them. It upset them. They had been taught to believe something very different. And evidently, they began stirring up trouble. And I imagine they came to Peter and they said something like this. Hey, Brother Pete, we know you mean well, but we're shocked that you would give up your Jewish heritage so easily. Don't you know that God wants every man to be circumcised? Haven't you forgotten that our Lord himself was circumcised? Does that mean, not mean anything to you? You're setting a terrible example for these people. Soon even our Jewish children won't be circumcised. What you're doing is wrong. Stop eating with these Gentiles. Stay with your own people, Peter. When Peter began to protest, I think that might have gone something like this. You know, Peter, we're going to have to write to James and to the other brothers in Jerusalem. We're going to have to tell them what's going on here. Maybe it was a bluff, maybe it wasn't. Peter didn't know. After all, Peter was this guy who had made a lot of mistakes before. He didn't want his reputation smeared again, so he gave in to them despite a lot of inner doubts. And he stopped eating with the Gentile brothers and sisters. Now, I can think of several ways that we might have justified it to them. Peter might have said, you know I love you. It's only till these guys leave town. They're putting up so much pressure on me, I have to do something. But you know what? In his heart, Peter knew this was wrong, but he did it anyway, and that's why the Apostle Paul accuses him of hypocrisy. The word simply means play-acting. Peter pulled back from the Gentile converts out of, these, out of fear from these men from Jerusalem. And it's really a sorry spectacle to see this bold apostle giving up his freedom in order to placate these men. Right over the whole story, the words of Proverbs 29, 25, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Peter feared what these men might do, so he compromised his convictions even though he knew it was wrong. And worst of all, his bad example caused other Jewish Christians to follow his example. Even Barnabas, Paul's associate, was carried away in the same hypocrisy. You see, spiritual leaders never sin alone. What they do always drags others with them. So maybe it happened like this when everybody came to, you know, Wednesday night supper at church. The Jewish converts would go through the line and get their food, and they would go off to the heritage room. And they would put up a sign that said, Jews only, kosher only. And that meant that the Gentile Christians, when they came to eat dinner that, at the church, they would have to go to the building next door or to, the, to another dining room. See, it's not hard to see where this was going to lead the church. Pretty soon you've got two churches in one. You've got two groups that don't get along with each other. You've got two groups that don't even like each other. And all because Peter caved in under pressure. But it's right at this point that we have to ask the question, what's the big deal? Where in the New Testament does it tell us that we 
what to eat or where to eat or who we should eat with? And the answer is nowhere. Eat what you want, when you want, where you want. Feel free to choose your own table mates. It's a category two issue. If you want to eat at Denny's, go ahead. If you want to eat at Bob Evans or McDonald's, go ahead. If you want to eat at a fancy restaurant in East Lansing, go ahead. But while you're at it, what's wrong with Jewish Christians eating with other Jewish Christians? Nothing. Or Gentile believers eating with other Gentile believers? Nothing. There's no rule against eating with your close friends and relatives, but there is something tremendously wrong with Jewish Christians eating together to the exclusion of the Gentile Christians. And there is something enormously wrong with the Gentile Christians saying to the Jewish Christians, you can't sit with us. That's what was happening at Antioch. The Jewish believers were pulling away from the Gentile Christians, and Peter was leading the way, even though he knew he was doing wrong. And I should point out that while it's not wrong to be with our people, our group, our friends at church, even today we need to be careful that even subconsciously we don't send out an exclusionary message that says other people aren't welcome here. Folks who are new to the church often pick up signals from us even when the rest of us think we aren't sending them out. And we do it all the time when we only talk in the lobby to the people that we know or only when we sit beside someone we care about. Let me illustrate this another way. Romans chapter 14 tells us that in the church at Rome, there were various groups and factions, including a group of vegetarians and a group of meat eaters. And this became a big problem in the, in the Roman church. Now let's suppose for a moment that we have a very vocal group of vegetarians here at Redeemer. They like their tofu and their bean sprouts and they don't like to eat meat. Some are very vegetarian for health reasons, others because they dislike the idea of turning animals into food, others because they believe that vegetarianism helps their walk with God. And we're supposed, and suppose we also have this second group who are meat eaters. So how are these two groups going to get along, the tofu crowd and the T-bone crowd? I myself enjoy a good steak now and then. But if I go to your home and you serve me a vegetarian meal, I will be careful to honor that. And I might even enjoy it, I don't know. But if you come to my home and I know you're a vegetarian, I'll make you a salad. See, I personally don't get too worked up about this one way or the other. It doesn't bother me if someone says, I am a vegetarian. More power to you. Go and be blessed. You're probably healthier than I am. Churches shouldn't split over issues like this. The only thing that would be wrong would be for the vegetarians to say, we're not going to eat with the meat eaters. We're not going to associate with them. Or the mediators to say, you know, I always did think vegetarians were a little strange, so we're going to stay away from them. You see, our fellowship in Christ ought to rise above what we put on our plates. And our fellowship certainly should include people whose background is different from our own. Paul's response to the problem in Antioch is decisive. And he saw that uh, they, that they were not following the truth of the gospel message. The Greek word here is orthopodio, which, uh, from which we get the English word orthopedic. Paul understood uh, that Peter's hypocrisy was really a compromise of the gospel. By withdrawing from the Gentile believers under these circumstances was to deny the truth that all believers are one in Jesus Christ. 
it established two classes of people in the church and implied that one class of believers, the Jewish Christians, was superior to the other class of believers, the Gentile Christians. And this must not be done, and so Paul takes drastic action. That's why he rebukes Peter face to face in front of all the others. He knew Peter's heart. He knew uh, that Peter knew better, but that made the compromise all the worse. Under pressure, Peter yielded to yielded his freedom in Christ, and he had done so because of these men from Jerusalem who go, might go tell James and the other apostles. So Paul takes some drastic measures because in his mind, the heart of the gospel is at stake. So now it's elevated to category one. Let me wrap up this ancient church conflict by focusing on four contemporary applications. And the first one is this. There are no infallible leaders. I'm sure that it was difficult for Paul to speak a word of correction to someone of Peter's stature. But it shows us that no spiritual leader is beyond correction. And I say that with all kindness and humility to my colleagues, both in the United Methodist Church and in other denominations, no being should be regarded as infallible no matter who they are. I don't even want you listening to my words today to believe them simply because I've said them. I'm capable of just as many mistakes as anybody. And if I speak the truth, it's only because I speak truthfully what God has said in his word. Instead, I encourage you to be like the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17 who listened to Paul and then went home and studied the scriptures for themselves to see if what he was saying was true. And this truth certainly means that all of us need to be, remain open to correction from other godly Christians. Sometimes we'll be like Paul and we'll have to go to a brother or sister and, and offer a word of correction. Sometimes we might be like Peter and be the one on the receiving end. But may God give us grace in both cases to speak the truth in love and to receive that truth with humility. Now secondly, when great issues are at stake, we must put truth above personal friendship when great issues are at stake. I, it couldn't have been easy for Paul to rebuke Peter face to face. He knew he was risking their friendship for the sake of the gospel. And what, he, what if Peter didn't take it so well? What if he got angry and attacked Paul's character? What if they ended up splitting this church apart? Paul couldn't be sure what was going to happen, but he knew what he had to do. The key to all of this is the phrase great issues. The truth of the gospel is really a great issue. It would be hard to find a greater one. The, there are many times when lesser issues are at stake, and we must decide to either agree or disagree in order to preserve our friendship in the Lord, and we can agree not to agree about a host of secondary issues. If we make every issue the hill to die on, we'll end up fighting all the time. But there are times when truly eternal issues are at stake. Is the Bible the word of God? Is Jesus the son of God? Is Jesus the way of salvation? Is salvation truly by grace alone? Are there people who are really lost? The principle is when the Bible speaks clearly and repeatedly to an issue, we have found that hill to fight and die on. However, I think it's easier to state the truth than it is to live it out in practice. And most of us won't ever end up needing to rebuke a fellow churchgoer for their misguided theology, but you know, this principle may come to play in our own family, in a classroom setting, over lunch at work, in a neighborhood meeting, or with 
friends who really don't share the same Christian worldview as us. And in those cases, we will need God's wisdom to know what to say and how much to say and how to say it, but the truth remains, and God needs to give us that courage to uh, not back down or keep silent just to save a friendship when truly great issues are at stake. Third, public sin must be rebuked publicly. Thoughtful leaders may ask why Paul didn't go to Peter privately. You know, doesn't Matthew 18 teach us that to go to someone privately when they've sinned against us? And the answer is yes, but that applies most often to personal offenses. If someone sins against me, I'm to go to that person privately, admonish them privately. If that doesn't work, I'm to take another person with me, and that's still a problem. Then I begin to take it to the, the whole church. So why doesn't Paul follow that pattern? Well, the answer is Peter's compromise wasn't against him personally. It was a public sin that was hurting the whole body of Christ. It was about to split the church, and therefore it had to be dealt with publicly. And there are times when the sin is of such a nature that a public rebuke is necessary, and this is one of those times. And then finally, since our freedom in Christ is always under attack, the church must uh, defend that freedom vigorously. See, Satan is not a great fan of the doctrine of free grace because he doesn't much care for Christian freedom. He will do whatever he can to bring us back under the bondage of the law. He will stir up trouble in the church to cause us to live in fear of other people and not in the freedom that we know through liberty in Christ. Paul was willing to fight for free grace and for Christian liberty, and we need to do the same. As I come to the end of this message this morning, the clearest application that comes to my heart is that we need to pray for our spiritual leaders. We ought to be praying for the people who lead the church, who have great responsibility, whose voice impacts the Christian community. We ought to be praying for leaders of our various ministries and our missionaries and our work teams that impact um, people in other parts of our nation and our world with the message of God's good news. See, every pastor needs prayer. Every Sunday school teacher and youth leader needs prayer. All of our lay leadership needs your prayers. Sometimes I think we take this far too lightly and we forget to pray and then we wonder why our churches are not all that they could be. So let me close with a story today about a need, our need to, to depend fully on God and not on our own resources. And this is a story that I pulled from the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's a story of a, of a prayer that King Jehoshaphat prayed. The Ammonites and the Moabites were moving a vast army against Jerusalem. There were so many of them, they're so well armed that the men of Israel feared they would never be able to defeat them. And as the invaders came closer and closer, the situation appeared increasingly hopeless. And the king called for a nationwide fast. People from every town and village gathered in Jerusalem to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood before them and he offered one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. He begins by declaring God's greatness. He says, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. And then he reminds God of the promises that God made to take care of his people when they were in trouble. And he tells God, we're in big trouble now. And he freely admits, we are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. And he concludes with a simple confession. He says, we do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help.
God's answer came through a prophet who told the people, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And then God said, stand still and watch the Lord's victory. And the next day, Jehoshaphat put the choir, the singers, at the head of the army, and he sent them out to do battle, and literally they stood still and they watched as the Lord sent confusion among the enemy ranks, and the Moabites and the Ammonites started killing each other by mistake. There was a great slaughter, followed by the plundering of the supplies left behind. And the story ends with the army gathering to, for a praise celebration, giving thanks to the victory that God provided. See, when Jehoshaphat prayed, we don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. He was really saying, God, we're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if you don't help us, we're sunk. I've often felt that way as a pastor. I'm not sure what to do next, but if God, I need your help. Apart from God's grace, that's where we all are. We're all a bunch of pathetic losers. Without God, we don't have a chance. We don't have a thing to offer anyone. And, and we don't know even what to do next. Sometimes I think the hardest job God has is getting us to admit how desperately we need him. So here's the bottom line. We need to be praying for each other. And we need to be praying for spiritual leaders and we need to be praying for God's church. Apart from God's grace, all of us are pathetic losers. There are no exceptions, but when pathetic losers band together and seek the Lord, miracles begin to happen. And the enemy is defeated and the church rolls on to victory. Thanks be to God.